We're in the Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts concerning your word. Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit that we might receive from you. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit that you might speak through me this morning. We'd ask, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would bless your people, and that you would help them hear and to respond to the voice of your spirit through your written word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Last week, we looked at at, uh, John chapter uh, 3, verses. We kind of got into the third verse, but not much. We did basically looked at the uh, first couple of verses. What's interesting about verse 3 of of John 3 is that the New King James says it slightly different. It, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot say, see the kingdom of God. The new, Amer- or the new American Standard says, truly, truly, the new King James, excuse me, the King James says, verily, verily, which is a word that nobody uses anymore, right? But what you have here is this double amen. And whenever this double amen is used, again, as I mentioned last week, it's the emphasis that we see when a word is used more than once. It is a Hebrew way of saying, pay attention, this is very important. And so that's what Jesus is is doing here in in talking to Nicodemus. What I find really fascinating is is that Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus and he says, we know that uh, uh, you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus doesn't even respond to that statement. What I believe that Jesus is doing here in his address to Nicodemus, particularly what we see in verse 3 and then following, is that Jesus is addressing the questions that are not asked although there's still the questions that are running around the heart of Nicodemus. Remember, as I said last week, it's, it's not unusual that we ask questions that we, we're, we're not really asking. And the questions that we are really asking, a lot of times we don't really articulate uh, be, because we're still formulating these things. We're still trying to understand these things. As it's, it's often it is, too, is that the statements that we make are not really the statements that we're really wrestling through and working through in our lives. We are people in process. We are people that are working through things and trying to understand things and, and, and trying to grasp heavenly things, as we read just a second ago. And Paul writes to the Corinthians in the first and then in the second chapter of First Corinthians that these things are spiritually discerned, and unless the Holy Spirit reveals them to us, we, we won't understand them. In fact, he goes on to say that the natural man reads these things, hears these things, thinks about the things of God, and they're considered foolishness to him. And so Jesus really here is cutting to the chase. And he shares with Nicodemus those things that Nicodemus really needs to hear. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again. Here in in verse 3 and again in verse 5, 
are the only two verses in the Gospel of John where the kingdom of God is even mentioned. The kingdom of God is a prevalent theme in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It really is all about the kingdom of God. And matter of fact, we see this even with the message of John the Baptist. He, he's out preaching, and he's preaching a, a, a gospel of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John does not focus as much at all, really, on the kingdom of God, although we'll see glimpses of that later on in this gospel. His primary focus is that of eternal life. It's interesting with John's focus on eternal life and with Matthew, Mark, Luke's focus on the kingdom because I believe that the kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. I think the Gospels teach that pretty clearly. John, in the same way, teaches that we have eternal life. If you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. It's not that you are going to get eternal life. It's not that you will inherit eternal life. You have eternal life now. But you do not have eternal life in its fullness yet. The idea of eternal life, the idea of the kingdom of God, they're parallel ideas that really, that, that really come together and they really are speaking the same thing is that we will go on with life without ending and we will go on in, in, a, in a place where God truly is king. Now, is God king now? He is. He just allows evil to have a very, 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 very long leash. And one of these days, all of that will change. And we will see the fullness of the kingdom of God when the king returns and sets up his kingdom. But Jesus tells us here that truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This word born again, or this phrase again, Greek word anathen, anathen, and it's, it's the word that creates some type of a misunderstanding, I think, in the, in the mind of Nicodemus because it's a very broad word. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean born again. It can mean born from above. And it could also mean from the beginning, which I don't think that applies here in this particular case. I think born again or born from above, either one of them works. But Nicodemus is not really understanding what Jesus is talking about. I remember it was years ago. There were, in Southern California where I grew up, um, which that was no fault of my own, by the way, but anyway, um, it happens. Right, there were people, and they, they weren't Christian, right? But they were distinguishing between Christian and those born againers. You ever been called a those born againer? I've been called a those born againer. If you've been born again, then you are a Christian. 
if you are a Christian, truly, if you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have been born again or born from above. It is a spiritual rebirth. But particularly with the people who refer to us as those born-againers, it's because they didn't like us, right? Uh, And often it was, I think, too, that the Holy Spirit would be convicting them of their lives, we see it later. Boy, this is really such a full chapter. Uh, men love darkness rather than light because why? Because their deeds are evil. And so people would do evil deeds, and here comes a, one of those born-againer types, right? And just ruins everything, you know? And, and boy, I, I, I saw it so many, so many times, particularly growing up in high school and such. And, 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 but the thing is, Jesus is making a very definitive statement here saying that unless you are born again, unless you are born from above, you're not seeing the kingdom. And if you don't see the kingdom, then you're not having what? Eternal life. Do you see as we read, if you think through this a little bit or even uh, glance ahead of what Jesus is saying a little bit later on in this chapter, that he is correlating this idea of the kingdom and eternal life together? That if you have been born from above or you've been born again, then you are part of God's kingdom. You are a child of God. What's interesting, too, about John is John likes to use a lot of contrast in his book, in his gospel. And what you have here is a contrast between the realm of the heavenlies or the realm above and the realm of the earth. Spiritual things, worldly things. That would be another way to say it. Another way to say it might be flesh and spirit. And now he uses, now pay attention on this one and disagree with me if you want, and you normally do anyway, but we, uh, it, John is using flesh in a different type of definition. When Paul talks about the flesh, he talks about the flesh being evil, essentially, doesn't he? He talks about the flesh being sinful. When John talks about the flesh, he's really talking more about the flesh being earthly. And we all have a part of our lives, a part of our thoughts, a part of our actions, a part of our general makeup of who we are that is really directly related to the earthly things. But when you have been born again, or born from above, you have entered a different realm as well, where now you are a part of the realm of the spiritual things, or the heavenly things, or the things of above. And we as Christians live spiritual lives. Why would we not expect, I'm going to make some of you uncomfortable on this one, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why would you not expect supernatural things? Why would you not expect them? I'm not advocating throwing away discernment. But what I also want to 
bring up, and I don't even know why I'm going here on this this morning, but I am, so I'm going to finish the thought and keep going into the text. The working of the Holy Spirit did not end at the canonization of the New Testament. Which, by the way, didn't happen until the 4th century. It didn't end then. There seems to be, with us as Christians, this idea of are we going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Are we going to be open to the Holy Spirit? Are we going to, to essentially, God forbid the term, permit the Holy Spirit to operate in the way that he wants because we can quench him, we can, we can quench him, we can grieve him, and all of the different things we can do with the Holy Spirit because we, we don't want to mess around with that really, really kind of weird stuff because I have a cousin who had a cousin who had a nephew who they spoke in tongues one time in church and everybody went crazy. Now, I'm a good Baptist, all right? But I'm not a cessationist. And let's be open to the things of the Spirit. Let's also be open to the fact that the Holy Spirit might actually want to say something to you each and every day. And it doesn't have to be weird. And it doesn't have to be strange. And yes, there are times that people say, well, the Spirit told me this. And I'm thinking, nah, you know what? The reality is I don't, go, I, I, don't, I don't go home with them. Right? I don't. I don't go home with that person. I go home with my wife. Right? I worry about me. I worry about my wife. I don't have to worry about you. And, and, and I, will, I, will, I will entrust the Holy Spirit. I will entrust to him your relationship to him even if I disagree with you. And sometimes I do. Don't want to look anybody in the eye right now, all right? The absolute necessity of being born again, of being born of the Spirit, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so if we are, I'm going to get into this in a second, so I'm jumping slightly ahead of myself, but just follow me. If we are born of water and spirit, then we enter into spiritual lives, period. How can you not? Now, there's still a part of us that is part of that earthly realm, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the new birth, we now have the capacity to tap into the spiritual things of God. Which often I don't understand. Which sometimes, maybe more often than I think, definitely maybe more often than I want to admit to any of you this morning, maybe I miss them. Maybe I miss his voice. Maybe because I'm so cluttered by other things that I miss hearing the voice of God. New birth, new family, new set of circumstances. I'm, ta- I'm stretching this here now. New DNA. Spiritually. Not just earthly. 
all the stuff that my parents passed on to me, all the stuff that your parents passed on to you, and essentially is overridden by all the stuff that your heavenly Father desires to pass on to each one of you. So Nicodemus, brilliant question. Verse 4, I'm being sarcastic, by the way. How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Well, Nicodemus, have you ever heard of anybody doing that thus far? He, see, he doesn't know what to say. So he, he, and it's interesting, because I do this from time to time. And I know each and every one of you, but I won't look you in the eyes either. I know each and every one of you do from time to time. You don't know what to say. You have, feel like you have to say something, so you end up saying something stupid. It's really what I see what's going on here. This is a very intelligent man. He's a teacher of Israel. He's well learned. And he doesn't have the first idea, doesn't have the foggiest notion what in the world Jesus is even talking about. So I think he's going with a caricature. He might be somewhat mocking Jesus here even. If you think about what he's saying. Can anybody enter their mother's womb a second time? Well, of course not. Unless, well, I, I don't think the blender would work either. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. But really, it's a ridiculous question. Because Jesus has taken Nicodemus to the end of his intellectual understanding. What a scary thing. Because when the Lord takes you to the end of your intellectual understanding, you know what I've found, and I hate to admit this to you, and some of you are not going to like this, but you probably haven't liked some of the stuff I've said already. But when Jesus takes us to the end of our intellectual understanding, therefore now we can no longer control God. I got some of your attention. We can no longer control him. We can no longer make sense of him. And all we can do is just trust in him and hold on for the ride. And sometimes in those places, at those times, the most earnest prayer that we can pray is, oh God, you know, you're looking for something to hold on to. Oh God, help me on this. And when we relinquish our control of God, then the Spirit has an opportunity to really get our attention because he has brought us to the place where he can finally speak to us and we're able to hear him. And basically, Jesus repeats himself. Truly, truly, the double amen Pay attention, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5 is a really controversial verse because it's interpreted in a lot of different ways. 
He says, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot be, enter the kingdom of God. A couple of different ideas on this. Water could represent our human birth. Spirit represents our new birth. Doesn't make a bit of sense to me, but a lot of people teach that. Because he is talking to people, in this case, Nicodemus. He's talking to Nicodemus who has what? Already been born. All right? But it's a hard, it's a hard verse. And some like to take this sacramentally. And they will refer to the water as baptism. Now, I will admit, there's a lot of things about baptism that I don't understand. I know that we are commanded to do so in following Jesus. But I also know that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Excuse me. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So baptism doesn't save you. We're called to be baptized. I, I think in the same way, communion. It doesn't save you, but I think the Lord instituted these things by which we can have these, these deeper spiritual experiences with him wrapped around physical elements with baptism, the water, with communion, the bread and the wine. Okay, the grape juice. Anyway, you get the idea. What's interesting is in this particular verse, in the Greek, water and spirit are linked together with the same preposition. Now, what does that mean? Some of you guys, if you, or ladies, if you're good English, and I wasn't good in English. I wish I'd studied more English. But anyway, um, if they are linked with the same preposition, that means in that particular sentence, they are not being described in contrast. They are being described in conjunction with one another. Does that make sense? Maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but it could be. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of both the water and the spirit. By the way, the word the, where it says and the spirit. Let me check and make sure the uh, New King James does or doesn't have it. Yeah, it has the spirit. There's no definite article in the Greek. I don't know why the New King James doesn't have it in italics. The New American Standard does. So it would actually read better, is born of water and spirit, not water and the spirit. So what's it talking about? Again, it's not a contrast, but it's a, 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 a linking together. It's a coordinating of these two ideas. Now, we have to go to the Old Testament. We have to go to the Old Testament, I think, to understand this. In the Old Testament, water is, is, is used, is, is symbolic of bringing uh, life to people. In Isaiah 55, 
Verse 1. I have part of it, but I want to read a little bit more than part, so I want to turn to it. Isaiah 55, verse 1. It says, ho. I think any verse that starts out with the word ho, I want to pay attention to. All right, New King James. Ho, everyone who thirsts. In other words, pay attention. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. If you are thirsty, the prophet Isaiah says, come to the waters. It's this idea that the water was this life-giving element. Especially living here on the high desert, if... uh, I can only go for a couple hours without a drink of water. I don't know about you. I start feeling really thirsty and really dried out. And I've gotten to where even at night there's a glass of water sitting on my nightstand, and I go through at least half of it. I wake up, and I'm like, I need a drink of water, you know. Um, water is life-giving physically. Water is symbolic in the Bible of life-giving spiritually. See, the physical The realm below, the realm of the earth, is often symbolic to illustrate the realm of things above, the realm of the heavenlies, the spiritual things. And and so water is this life-giving idea. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, I have it in front of me. I'll read it to you. He says that my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of what? Living waters. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. So they have forsaken God, who is the source of spiritual life. And, second of all, they have hewn for themselves, or dug out for themselves, cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You guys know what a cistern is. Some of you guys grew up on the farm, you know what a cistern is, right? It's uh, like a, a pit or a, a, like a cave or something where you can store water in. I was surprised when I first moved here to find out that there are houses that are somewhat off the grid. Uh, at least they don't have any, any, any water that's plumbed into the house, and they have these huge cisterns that are in the ground. That's their water supply. And they had hewn from themselves broken cisterns that leak, essentially. Water, spiritually, is the symbol in the scriptures of, the, of, the, of God's giving of spiritual life to each of us. Just as water sustains us physically, water also sustains us spiritually. I'll jump ahead. John chapter 7, we'll look at that, you know, probably next July. I don't know. Um, John chapter 7. If any man thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me and I will give him what? Living water. John commentates on what Jesus said. And this he spoke of the spirit who had not yet come because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Water is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Water is linked with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah chapter 44. 
in verse 3, it says, For I will pour out water on him who is thirsty, and the floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. You know what's interesting about Isaiah 44? This fascinates me. Isaiah 44 is an end-time context. Isaiah 44 is talking about when Jesus, the Messiah, returns and establishes what? The kingdom. He establishes the kingdom and he pours out water and he pours out spirit upon his people. Because unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is referencing that which has already been declared by the prophets here. It fascinates me how how the Bible is so integrated and so knit together. One more, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I'm going to finish a little early today. says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Again, it's an end-time context. I'll use the $500 word for you. The eschatological context is what's in here. He'll sprinkle clean water on us. Cleanse us from all our filthiness. Because when one is born again... Of the Spirit, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. Even though some of you remember them each and every day. And then some other people that you know sure like to remind you of them, don't you? Don't they? And someone else likes to remind you of them. And that is the enemy of our souls, Satan. So the water and the spirit that comes together, we are born of the water. We are born of the spirit. Born of the water representing new life. Born of the water representing this cleansing. And born of the spirit, which means we now have a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If you were in Christ, you are a what? A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. New. And that's why Jesus can say, and I'm going to close. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. I want to take on verse 8 next week because I love verse 8. Although I kind of touched on it this morning without touching on it. Don't be amazed. Don't be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. I'm willing to bet one of two things is happening in Nicodemus' mind and heart right here, right then. He's either more confused than he was, one, or second of all, the Spirit of God is starting to speak to him in such a way that he's like, yeah. Yeah, 
it, it makes sense. Actually, it doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense. You ever been there? Have you ever been there in the things of the faith where you're like, this makes absolutely no sense, but there's something that rings in me, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit speaking to me saying, this is true, so I need to step into things. And is that sensing, is that the Holy Spirit leading me, guiding me, affirming to me, uh, confirming to me, or was that the pepperoni piece I had the night before? I got tired of using the enchilada illustration, but anyway. And so to pursue these things, don't be amazed. You know what that also says to me? I hate to say this to you. I already think I've stepped on enough toes this morning. But nonetheless, I think what it's saying to us is don't have a safe Christianity. Oh, boy. And that can be a real problem. It really can. But then again, as Jesus said to us, and I believe the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning, if he has taught us earthly things that we do not understand, how in the world are we going to understand heavenly things? Because I have found in my pursuit of God that when, when I take another step, another chapter, another era in my life, when I feel that God is calling me into something new, the first thing that I realize is that I am in a place of total confusion. Well, I thought the Bible said that God's not the author of confusion. Of course he said that. But what I've also found that my confusion prompts my curiosity. And is this road going to be a dead end? Or is this road going to be an avenue into a new aspect of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? So don't be amazed. Don't be amazed that Jesus said, you must be born again. You see why so many people describe John as the mystic? Because so much of his writing, it, it, is, it, it, really, it really gets, into, gets past that surface layer. And it really starts getting into the depths of our souls. And yes, there are so many things that I don't understand. And yes, there are things that I'm still pursuing. And they're, and they're things that I have pursued for years. But I'm responsible, I believe, for two things. The things I do understand and for having a heart that continues to desire to pursue the things of God.